Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey everybody, I'm Andy Baldacci and welcome back to the Agency Advantage Podcast. Today is episode number nine and we're joined by Brennan Dunn of WFreelancing.com. Brennan started his first agency in 2008, built that to a million dollar a year business, and then exited when he realized it wasn't what he was looking for. Since then, he's launched PlanScope, a SaaS product that helps you gain total control of your agency, taught over 30,000 freelancers how to charge what they're worth, and recently launched a new agency, which he plans to continue growing while maintaining his ideal work-life balance. Now, Brennan knows how to run a successful agency better than anybody I've ever talked to, and I've been dying to get him to come on the show so he can share some of those insights with you. Usually here I identify some specific thing that a guest can help you achieve in your agency, but honestly, Brennan covers so much and explains it so well that I don't care what you're looking to do. If you run an agency, this is an episode you don't want to miss. So without further ado, here's Brennan. Thanks, Brenna. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Hey, so I'm sure a lot of my listeners are familiar with your story and your work over at W Freelancing. But for those that aren't, can you share a little bit of that story for us? Sure. So what uh, I kind of accidentally stumbled into consulting, I, uh, I was working down in Miami and I was working at a interactive agency, which was my first time ever working with a company that wasn't, I guess, a product company. They had clients and you know, it was more of a services company. And uh, what ended up happening was my wife got pregnant and we wanted to move up closer to her family up here in Virginia. So I had to quit this job, which, you know, I was in my early 20s making six figures. And I was very happy, very content, got to travel a lot to cool places. And here I was now needing to leave all that to um, really start from scratch. And I didn't know anything about the business community or anything up here. So I ended up... Um, actually reaching out to a college friend of mine who was involved in the startup scene in San Francisco and got a contracting gig. Well, I I don't even know what it was called. I just knew they were going (laughs) to pay me 50 bucks an hour. And I thought that was awesome. Um, But yeah, I was just, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into freelancing that way. And what ended up happening was I, I guess I did good work and I got referrals, not really knowing what to do with them. And I knew I could either, uh, turn them away because I was kind of booked solid or I could grow a team. So I decided to grow a team. And at first it was just kind of like a collective of uh, subcontractors. And then I got a little more formal, opened up an office, um, grew the company to 11 employees. Yeah. I, I, that's where I learned kind of the business side of things. So how long ago was that? I uh, started freelancing back in 2007 ish uh, agency would have started 2008 exited that 2012, I want to say. Okay. And so you start out, you're going on a referral, then you kind of build from there, starting at $50 an hour. What was the process like of going from just being yourself to then, you know, just a couple of years having a team of 11 employees? It was, it was big because I, well, there were a few things. First off, I suddenly had a lot of fixed expenses where, um, you know, it's one thing to have maybe your mortgage and your car payment and everything else. But when you start, adding employees, especially developers, I mean, you're looking at, you know, 10,000 plus with each hire for each, you know, new employee. So that was very intimidating because previously I'd kind of relied on random referrals. And I knew that if I was going to add 
let's say get to 50,000 a month in uh, expenses, I couldn't just expect that 50,000 a month in projects would come in. So I had to really learn how to get work that way. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, management was something I had to learn. Really understanding what it is, why people hire us was probably the biggest thing. And that was really at the end of the day, the inflection point that allowed us to go from $50 an hour all the way up to, you know, five figures a week. And so let's, let's dig into that a little bit. And so when you say figuring out why people hire you, I'm assuming most kind of agencies and freelancers and consultants are just saying, Hey, these people want a new website. And so what, what did you figure out was the real reason? Why was that kind of a mistake to assume that? Yeah. So I think that the, the thing about running the company was I was kind of no longer in the weeds of doing the technical work anymore, but I was, you know, more involved in the sales and kind of the project management side of things. So what that allowed me to do, and it was very, again, it was very unintentional. I, I really started to learn that, you know, people weren't spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars because they liked getting code written for them or anything <laughs> like that, right? There was, right? there was a business objective at hand. And it wasn't until I really surrounded myself with people who have been involved in running businesses a lot longer than I had um, that I really learned that at the end of the day, everyone's selling a product. And even if you're selling time, you're still, you need to sell that time like a product. We all make fun of those like big enterprise solutions companies with the stock photo websites and everything else. But at the end of the day, they're actually doing a lot of things right. They're actually selling on, they're selling solutions rather than saying, hey, we're like a Ruby shop or something. That means absolutely nothing to anybody. You know, so I started shifting from being, because, you know, early on when I started, if you would have met me at a networking event and you were a prospective client and you asked me what I did, I would have, I remember I, I used to say, you know, I, I run a Ruby shop. It's like, what the hell does that even mean? Right? Like there's no, there's nothing, even if you know what Ruby is and for those listening, Ruby's a programming language. Um, even if you knew what Ruby is, it doesn't actually imply that you do anything of value. Right. I mean, it just right. means you write code. Great. So what kind of responses would you get when you would say that? Well, in my area, not much because, I mean, usually people would, it was funny. I brought on a salesperson. One of my first hires was a salesperson. I was trying to kind of onboard him into the company, company, ha ha, be me. He would get asked by people. So like, so you're a web design company? And I'm like, and he, he wouldn't really know how to respond. And I was like, no, 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 no. We build custom software, like really push that. And, you know, there was just this ambiguity in terms of, you know, I wanted us to, you know, I looked down on kind of brochure website creator companies and, you know, the type who build a WordPress site and throw it up there. But really, it took a long time for me to realize that at the end of the day, no one can, like most of the, the clients I wanted to work with didn't care that it was Ruby or WordPress or like some off the shelf thing or whatever. They, they just wanted some sort of business problem solved. So I started selling that solution and, and that, that kind of the reversal of the problem they currently have instead of selling Ruby on Rails and these libraries and this and that and, you know, object-oriented code and TDD and all this techie stuff that I'd go to these technical conferences and, and just get immersed in. And then I try to sell things like, like case in point, um, if, if you're technical and you're listening, you know, I, I used to try to sell TDD or test-driven development, and it just didn't resonate with anyone, right? Like, no one was – these people weren't going to RubyConf or, or whatever. They didn't know, they didn't go to the talks that talked about how great TDD is. But then I realized, you know, if I could just tell people that the biggest overhead 
or the biggest expense with software is typically maintenance. And TDD will lower the total cost of ownership. If I sell a lower total cost of ownership, now when, now when you're talking to a business owner, now their eyes start to exactly. you know, open up. That's something they'll pay for. Exactly, right. So it really just, I guess the long and short of it is I started selling benefits, not features. And uh, most agencies, I think, still sell features. Once you started positioning yourselves in terms of the, the benefits, what did that allow you to do? What made what was easier to do in your agency? Was it hiring? Was it increasing rates? Or was it kind of just all over the place you saw improvements? Well, it did a lot of things. First off, we it was easier for us to close projects because we weren't competing with everyone. We weren't, you know, if, if somebody were to come to us and say, why should I pay your team, I don't know, one fifty an hour when I can go on Odesk and there are people for $10 an hour in Pakistan and we'll do it. Why should I pay you? I don't really have an answer to that because, again, if I was selling Ruby development and there's a guy overseas selling Ruby development for a fraction of my cost, why should they pay me? You know, it became easier to sell because we weren't selling a commodity. You know, one thing I learned growing a team was people wanted kind of more creative latitude, wanted more creative freedom and not um, kind of like this, you know, they didn't want to be micromanaged. They didn't want to deal with like spec work, I guess. Um, So, because people were coming to us as consultants, they usually came to us without like a giant like set of wireframes or whatever else. Instead, they were coming with a higher level problem that we could then go in and come up with a strategy to solve it along with doing the work to solve it. So there was a lot more creative freedom in the work we did. And on to, and finally, the, the third kind of benefit is that we got paid more, which um, is nice too. <laughs> yeah. And so let's, let's dig into, I guess, kind of the root of this a little bit is that, that value-based selling, the, the value-based approach you take. For some of them, it, it's kind of obvious. You can say, okay, test-driven development is great because it limits overhead. It limits the, the maintenance that has to happen down the road, the technical debt, all of that. But for some of the problems, I'm sure the clients aren't just telling you, Hey, we need a lot more clients as we're having a hard time paying our bills. Like, can you help? Like, how do you figure out what their problem actually is? So, um, what ended up emerging and, and this is all stuff I now include in the courses I teach on this. Um, what ended up emerging was a framework that came from both again, surrounding myself with some smart business mentors along with just doing a lot of reading. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's this process that I still use called Socratic questioning where the idea is if somebody comes to you with, let's say, a website redesign, um, you need to just ignore the fact that they want a website redesign and try to really figure out why. Like, why are they willing to spend money? Like, why did they wake up this morning and say, I'm going to call up this Brennan guy and ask him to take my money and redesign my website? Like, what what is the impetus under it? So what I, would use, what I do is I would try to identify what exactly happened. Was there like an event or a series of events that, that triggered them reaching out to somebody like me, you know, and this is all done through conversation. And then, you know, I would try to go even further back and try to really figure out what is the underlying business problem that is precipitating this redesign. So the client obviously thinks that doing a redesign will, will improve their business in some way. Why does it need to be improved? Like what's the problem? And it's usually, I mean, one of the things that really helped me with this was looking into the, um, that jobs to be done framework where there's this idea that everyone, you know, whenever anybody buys anything or hires somebody, a switch is happening. So if they're redesigning their website, they're firing their old design and thinking that by hiring a new design, 
that now they're going to get what they want. And the problem is if you're just selling yourself the same way that that original designer sold them on like, Ooh, you know, like, you know, let's talk about design and colors and blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, you're, you're coming in as high risk because they've heard this before. And what's to say that they're going to pay for this redesign and they're not going to get what they need. But if you can come in and really understand why do they actually want a redesign? What does that mean for their business? Well, what will more customers enable for them? Are they looking to maybe um, open up a new location or are they looking to bring on more staff or, you know, there's something usually, um, you know, even under the problem, like a, a goal that if the problem is eliminated, what will happen? So trying to understand all that and then just selling that, selling the, the bridge that connects where they are now to where they want to be is infinitely better than just coming in and selling the typical like proposal of I'll do this, 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 and this. I'll charge you this much an hour. It'll take probably this long. Sign here. Right. And that's like the, that's a standard approach that most are, are coming into consulting or freelancing with is they just say, okay, you want this website? It'll be five pages. It'll get this. It'll be done this much time. It'll be this cost. And that's, that's about it. They don't, they don't get to the bottom of it. And I think you touched on a good point where you talked about the risk to the client, which is something that a lot of agencies and consultants don't think about as much. They, they think like, okay, this person's coming with this project. It's a website or it's a custom piece of software. We build websites or we build software. It's like, we can do that. But to the client, it's not always that simple. They, they're going to think their situation is different than all the other ones. They want to know that you understand their actual problems and can solve those. And so I feel like that is, helps a lot with closing those deals easier. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what I think helped me was realizing early on that we'd work with a lot of clients who ended up going out of business and realizing that a lot of it was technically not our fault. Like we did what we were supposed to do, but what was delivered was not what they needed. But the more we could come in and, and really help them be successful instead of just being an order taker, the more likely they would succeed, which if they can succeed, I mean, I don't want a portfolio of four four links, you know, like that's the last thing you should want as an agency. So it's in your best interest, I think, to make your customers successful because that's how you get referrals. That's how you get repeat work. It's, it's a win-win for both parties. It seems small at first, but that's a big mental shift from being, like you said, an order taker who just says like, okay, you want a website? I'll, I'll give you a website to becoming a true consultant who says, let's figure out what you really need and what solution is best suited to that. That's right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are a little intimidated by, I, I think a lot of us think that, well, our, our job is to code or our job is to design and our job is not to talk business. And I think making that determination is, is hurting a lot of us because we have a lot of experience. Most of us have a lot of experience building stuff, building, let's say prototype apps for new startups or building, you know, creating designs or, or whatever, whatever it is you happen to do. I think a lot of us just naturally think like the client has it all figured out when they come to us. They know exactly what needs to be done. It's the, like they've, they've gone away and, and went off to some like retreat place and just thought through this whole thing really in depth. And um, th that usually doesn't happen. Right. Cause you forget that their business isn't software development. It's not right. They don't do this all day. Right. You do. So you're the expert when they come to you. So they probably have an idea of what they want, but a lot of times it's not what they actually need. That's right. That's right. So I think it's in our interest to actually consult and not 
Like, you know, what it is you actually do technically is just a means to an end. Like when you can, when people can finally realize that all this, the stuff they're passionate about, that object-oriented programming, you know, TDD, whatever, is just a means to an end. It's a way to connect the dots from where um, somebody is now to where they need to be. That's when, I mean, that's when you can start to set yourself apart and really start hiking up your prices because you're hiking up your value. I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's not like you're just doubling your rate. Instead, you're you're delivering a better product. Right. And it's more about kind of just changing how you talk about your service and it's actually providing a service. It's providing something on top of just the spec work that they come in for you to do. That's right. And I mean, you know, you mentioned risk earlier on. The, the thing is, like, the reason people want to spend less money is because one way to mitigate risk is to expose yourself less. So if you spend less, you are putting less, you're basically hedging your bet. Case in point, let's say you wanted to get more customers and you were talking to different UX people who could help with onboarding. Well, if one person was selling you on actually getting you more trials that convert versus somebody who's like, I'll play in Photoshop for 50 bucks an hour. I mean, you're probably, you'd be probably more inclined to spend more on the safer horse, right? And it's the same, I mean, it's the same thing. Like people spend, you know, they're willing to pay a premium if there's lower risk and getting what you need. And that's why people like off the shelf products. Like, I mean, every, every, agency would be out of business tomorrow if an off-the-shelf product existed, a turnkey product existed that would satisfy every business problem. Right. If it already existed, they don't, they wouldn't need to have it made just for them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's why, again, because it's a lower risk. If you buy something that products are usually sold on benefit, um, you know, like they're sold differently than just open-ended, Hey, pay me to bang on my keyboard for this much an hour. Like there's nothing implicit about banging on a keyboard for this much an hour that will give me what I need. Right. So. And there's one, there's one book I know you talk a lot about is Sean D'Souza's uh, brain audit. And in that book, he, he gives the example of like the, the allergy clinic where at first they just were an allergy clinic. That's what they what did. If you had everyone. Yeah. Yeah. If you had an allergy, you would go in and they would help figure out, figure out what it was, figure out how you could deal with it, this and that. And then they changed their position. They changed what they said. And they said, we focus on what was it? Hay fever? Or what? It was hay fever or yeah. something like yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, they started getting way more business because if you know roughly what you have wrong with you, you're going to go to the person that deals with that. Like if you have a broken hand, you're not going to go to kind of your, the general practitioner. You're going to go to the guy that deals with hands. And so yeah, no, so that's I think especially talking with Philip Morgan and Travis Northcutt those guys who have dialed in the positioning, it's easy to see how taking that expert angle really does help. But here's the issue with that. And here's where I sympathize with a lot of agents. They say, well, let's say I only focus on this niche. Well, I, I can do anything, right? Like I can build, I can build an internal app for a brick and mortar company. I can build a startups prototype. I can like, why would I want to intentionally potentially turn off different things. And, and what Sean mentions in that book is not just obviously the people with hay allergies, like huge conversion bump on, on that segment, but it really lifted all the other boats too, where it was because they were actually talking to somebody specific who actually had an issue rather than trying to be like a lawyer and trying to appeal to everything 
without actually talking to anyone. Right. They'll say, I know this is what you work on, but can you help me with this? Because they know you're an expert in that area, but they, and they rightfully assume that people aren't dumb. They they know if you're an expert in this one area, it doesn't mean you have no knowledge about things that are pretty related to it. So they'll still come to you for a lot of those other areas. Things like land, like uh, a lot of landing pages, like case in point. Um, I don't know if you know, uh, the guys over at, you need a budget, but Jesse Meacham, Mm -hmm. he runs ad campaigns. I mean, he has budgeting software, but he'll run ad campaigns that point people to landing pages, like, uh, budgeting for real estate agents or budgeting for military service people or budget, like every fill in the blank, right? That allergy clinic could have 50 different landing pages that all target a different kind of person. And they can have different ways of acquiring people to look at those pages. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the more specific you are, the more tangible you are in terms of actually addressing somebody's problem. And really that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like when people talk about niching and everything, um, if you're a generalist, let's say web design company, when you write a proposal, you're niching or you should be, um, you're basically saying here, you know, we have talent and we're going to apply that talent to your unique business problem. And here's how we're going to do it. All niching it means is, front-loading all that into your marketing. I mean, that's it. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a good way, because you're right. When you're writing proposals, that's as focused a niche as you can get. You're writing to one. You're writing to one. It's a sales letter for one, right. Exactly. Or it should be. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, in some cases, probably not. But you're right. If you think about it that way, then positioning or even just creating a landing page is almost taking a slight step back from that and saying, how can we help other people in this general area? Because the problem is, if you're just saying... The issue is if you're if you're saying you're a web design company, you're then needing to appeal to people who have already figured out they have a problem and have already figured out that web design can solve that problem and are on the lookout for people who provide web design. Which, when you're at that point, you're already kind of been swimming swimming in commodity waters, and you're already going to be price shopped because if they're going to fill out your lead form, they're going to fill out everyone else's lead form too. Um, but if you can step further back and really focus on um, you know, actual business problems that you can prompt to people before web design is even on the table, then it's, you know, then you can kind of handhold somebody directly from experiencing the problem to solving the problem without then needing to consciously realize maybe I need a new web, you know, web design or something. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I've always wondered related to this is like, there are plenty of kind of general web development shops out there that have, 50, 100 or more employees and they're doing very well. Are they doing something wrong? Like, like how do those agencies succeed while staying fairly general? They have a lot of A-type personalities who know how to network. Um, I mean, you look at like some of the big ones like Pivotal Labs. What they've done is they've worked their way into so many VC companies that they're basically just getting like, oh, we're funding you? Okay, great. Here's who you're going to use to develop you know, the, the big ones are just tend to be very, they tend to be everywhere first off. So, you know, their team is speaking at conferences and they're really providing a lot of value, ideally. Like, um, uh, ThoughtBot up in Boston is a good example of doing this. I mean, they've got like, they've got an, uh, I don't know if they still have it. It was called like ThoughtBot Prime, I think, which was a kind of like a mentoring program in a way where let's say you're an employee or let's say you're a manager of a CTO, a small company, and you have an employee who's doing Ruby work. Well, you can pay ThoughtBot a few hundred bucks a month 
and they will personally coach and mentor your, your, your employee. And you might think like, well, how does that help ThoughtBot with their consulting arm? But I used to do with my agency a lot of uh, training. You know, we would sell training to local companies. And to me, it was like, like putting a Trojan horse and, you know, wheeling it up to the skyscraper. Because what you're doing is, you know, you go in there and you teach. Let's say I, I taught a local company, a local big company about um, did a thing on jQuery once. Well, what ended up happening was the delta between the teacher and the students was huge, but they needed the, they needed what jQuery could do. So they ended up hiring us and we, we effectively sold ourselves and proved ourselves by virtue of coming in as, as authorities and teaching on jQuery. So that's kind of what, like, you know, when ThoughtBot does that, yeah, they're making some money that way, but it's really a great way for them to generate consulting leads. Right, because they they're able to easily in like very in a very hands on way to demonstrate their authority and their expertise. Yeah, it's like, hey, we taught your team how <laughs> to code the right way. Right. Why don't you just let us? You know, if you can, if you don't have the internal resources to do Project X, we can do it for you. I guess in my mind, the way I see it is, there's kind of two approaches to it. There's one: it's if you want to stay more general, you need to have a much much stronger argument of authority of expertise, and you do kind of like you said, need to be everywhere. And for some agencies, they're able to do that. They have the connections, they have the network they can leverage, they have the speaking arrangements, they have all of that, and so it can work for them. But for especially the smaller growing agencies, I feel like this the approach of kind of specializing in really not even necessarily getting too specialized, but focusing on the value is a much easier way to, to grow the business in the agency. Yeah, and you can do a lot of more creative things. Like you can really niche down and become an, a, the expert in doing X. Mm-hmm. Well, still, don't, you don't need to discard your generalist anything. I mean, all you're doing is you're adding new acquisition channels. It's not about like you don't necessarily need to say I'm going to turn away, you know, any work that is kind of with, outside of this niche. You can do that. Some people do recommend doing that. I'm more risk averse, so I the way I look at it is start to add new channels of acquiring clients. But you don't need to retire the existing channels, like your existing referral network or whatever else, until it becomes until you get to the point where a given channel is both profitable and reliable. You know that when it makes sense. That's the approach that Travis Northcutt took with with his agency is that he transitioned to membership sites, but kept doing his old client work. And if people came to him with something outside the scope, he kept doing it. And then when his pipeline was basically filled with membership only sites. It seems like now he's transitioned to pretty much just that. Right. So once you really get a master on selling that to that niche, that's when it makes sense to just really double down on that. But I think a lot of people think like, I'm going to be a generalist on Friday and by Monday, I'm going to be a, you know, the, the guy who only does, uh, you know, lead generation web design services for lawyers or something. <laughs> no, and you made, you made a good comparison when you talked about Jesse from You Need a Budget, where you don't need to even throw out your website. You can just add a landing page just for this new niche, just to test something out. It doesn't need to change everything you already do. That's right. Exactly. So when you started out, you were doing, you're charging $50 an hour, and then you shut down that agency in 2012. And what were you billing roughly at that point? Uh, so what we did is another kind of pro tip is we um, sold a weekly product. So what we ended up doing was for 10,000 a week, you would get a senior developer, a uh, junior, which is really an apprentice. I mean, that's how we got new team members. We had to grow. We had to convert them from their 
you know, ugly world of Java or .NET. Um, so we would, we would bring them and I paid them like 15, 20 bucks an hour to learn kind of on the job, but that meant I could sell two people, but I also sold on top of that part-time project management and part-time QA. So I had, you know, like one of the people who worked for me, all she did was QA every project. Um, so what that ended up allowing us to do was it's not that we're selling a person for 10 K a week. Cause then they just divide that by 40. Like, Oh, that's crazy. Instead we were saying you get this, this weekly iteration product that you get, you know, this, this Paris attention for a week, which allows us also to pull in resources. Let's say we're doing billing code and Andrew happens to be better doing Stripe work than, you know, the person on the project, we can pull him in, he can help out, you know, and so on. And, and along with that PMQA, uh, we bundle in things like, um, you know, weekly planning meetings, daily stand-up notes that they'd get. And what this allowed us to do is we, we really had, we defined a product and that product had a price tag of 10K a week, which is easily budgetable. People weren't getting billed for, um, clients hate seeing on invoices, line items for meetings or project management. So it allowed us to get rid of that altogether without needing to fix price everything, which considering we were doing big custom software engagements, we just couldn't always do that. Brennan got his agency to where many of us want to be, a full pipeline of clients, and he was charging 10 grand a week for his work. So why shut it all down? We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but when we come back, Brennan's going to share why he decided to walk away. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Now, Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or on the back of napkins or whatever else you're using and start getting the insights into how your team is actually spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without all the crazy fees. Where they really find the true value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with a project management tool to see what tasks are taking up their team's time. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I do want to warn you, though, there's a good chance once you see this data, you're going to be sick when you realize how little time is spent actually delivering the project itself. But you can't set up the procedures to make your agency more efficient if you're just guessing where time is being spent. So give Hubstaff a try so you can stop guessing and start streamlining your agency. Head over to hubstaff.com today and sign up for a free, no credit card required, 14-day trial and get your agency back on track. All right, let's get back to Brennan. It seems like you'd figured out a ton of stuff over that point. So why wind the agency down? So the problem was, I think the problem that I had was a cultural problem in that I I became, the agency success or the agency's operation day-to-day became dependent on me being there, where... What ended up happening was I was traveling a lot because our clients were all over the world and I like traveling, but when you have two kids under five, it's hard to do that. Um, and on top of that, I, you know, I, I live in the suburbs. The agency was downtown. I had basically created a nine to five job for myself or nine to six really job for myself. And by the time I would come home, my kids would be either in bed or about to be in bed. You know, I mean, if I could go back, yes, I would have taken more of like a Derek Sivers approach and really detached myself from the um, day-to-day running of the business. But yeah, I, I just hadn't done that because I was so, you know, all in, I guess, in building this this great business. Um, and and to, on top of that, honestly, I got bit by the product bug and realized, wouldn't it be nice to have a thousand people paying me a little bit instead of four people paying me a lot? Right. And so that's where you went big with the, your double your freelancing.com. Well, now that's when I started with PlanScope. 
Oh, so that's true. Was my first, my SAS. Yeah. But so I started the SAS and, um, cause as an, as a kind of an engineer, I figured the only valid thing, way to make money that doesn't involve consulting or being a, an employee is through software. Right. Yeah. You know, info products. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I did. So I, I started PlanScope and the problem is, and I mean, you're in SAS, you know, this, um, it's not exactly like, uh, Start SaaS today, tomorrow have living income from that. Right. Not everybody is Slack. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Except we all look at these success stories and imagine too much. Exactly. But um, <laughs> anyway, so I, I started this and what ended up happening was I got a lot of people through the support channels who were emailing me about things that I considered out of scope. So it's a project management tool and people are asking me about like pricing or getting clients and on top of that, people would cancel, and I'd ask them why. And a number one cancellation reason would be ran out of work. So at first, well, I didn't even think products. At first, I was just thinking, um, I, you know, people would talk to me, and I talked back, and we'd get on Skype sometimes. And I would just, I, I realized I kept saying the same thing. It was just a lot of anecdotal stuff from things I'd learned growing an agency, and that led led to eventually, not even with WRFinancing.com in the picture. I was like, oh, I could just do the content marketing thing and write a lot of articles on these things about like pricing or or getting clients or whatever, throw it on the PlanScope blog that'll bring in organic traffic, that'll convert to trials and so on. Um, but then what ended up happening was I just got a lot more success on the training side than I did on the SaaS side. So I really focused, I started focusing seriously on that. And it was different too, because with um, software and, and you would know this with software, it's, it's hard to sometimes say like somebody could use Hubstaff and it could revolutionize their life and their business, but it's not always direct as if you were to write a book on like time management and they read it and they're like, aha, light bulb moment. And then they do something and then they, you know, become super successful or something. It's a little more direct. I think usually, you know, training the results of training, than the results of using a software tool, for instance. So I started getting a lot of emails. Um, I've actually get, gotten to the point now where I have somebody full-time who all she does is deal with testimonials because I was getting emails from people saying like, you know, hey, um, you don't know me. We've never talked, but I went through your course and now I'm getting married, you know, a year sooner than I thought I could. Um, thank you. You know, cheers from you know, Malta or wherever, wherever the heck they are. Right. So, um, I really, really started to enjoy that. And as you know, I mean, we, we were talking some before we started recording. I've done like a conference now. I'm doing another conference in Stockholm this summer. Uh, I'm just really enjoying this, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's kind of how that all came to be. At first it was more Brennan's random anecdotal experience. Now I'm realizing that I'm now like a researcher in chief in a lot of ways where I have, you know, 30 plus thousand consultants on my list and I'm able to survey and talk to them and learn like, what are the big problems you're having with getting clients and doing research around that and, and interviewing people and then um, transferring those findings either as, you know, articles, podcasts, courses, whatever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how that all, that's where I am now, but I'm, I'm still consulting. Uh, right. Cause that's what I was going to say is because you, you started up recently another agency, didn't you? Yes. I, uh, I don't like, I feel it would be like if I were to write books on Ruby, but not write Ruby anymore. Right. Like to me, that would be problematic. And that's why I still like, 
even though, I mean, fortunately, the benefit of kind of the stuff I teach is it's pretty evergreen. You know, it's not like the, the ideas on how to network well aren't going to change year to year, unlike Ruby. Right. Google won't change the algorithm on network. Exactly, right. You know, it's one thing to have a lot of faceless customers, but when you can actually work on a specific problem individually, I still get a lot of enjoyment out of that. So, uh, yeah, I started an agency that is kind of, it's like a public experiment, which I haven't done as much of. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work, but I haven't publicized a lot of it just because I'm pretty busy with others. Yeah, so I was going to say, it doesn't seem too public at this point. No, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, one benefit of having written a lot about what I've done with PlanScope, for instance, is I kind of got on the radar of a lot of SaaS companies, so or product companies. So um, I've worked with a few companies like Gumroad and others, and I've helped them with um, email marketing or onboarding or whatever else. I'm actually working now with an agency, which is probably, I'm, I'm filling up my niche, right? And I'm probably going to settle on this. I'm, I'm working with an agency who has too many leads and they don't have a process for how they sell. So I'm coming in and doing a lot of mark, setting up custom marketing automation plus code to make it so that they can sell better. And at least that's kind of like it's, it's consulting, but it's still within the, it's the same audience that I appeal to just a right. small segment of it. So what do those engagements kind of look like in terms of if an agency comes to you that says, Hey, we have too much business. We don't know where to go from here. And you come in and you want to help with, like you said, the marketing automation to help with the selling process. What, sorts of things are you, are you working on specifically? So one of the things I've done for a client is um, they were doing, so they have one salesperson who was doing, you know, any new leads would go to his inbox. He would reply to them. He'd qualify them. He would then do the back and forth, try to schedule a time to meet. Um, and then after, after talking, he would automatically then, you know, they have a very, they have a productized kind of, um, paid discovery road mapping service that they offer up front. So all this was done manually with a lot of just a mess, right? <laughs> so what I've done for them is made it so actually when somebody now comes to lead, it actually, they get added to drip, which then Zapier shoots off the thing to pipe drive, which creates a deal. which then shoots back the deal of the pipe drive ID to drip. And then it sends them an email with a link to a qualification survey once they fill that survey out, it syncs all their data with PipeDrive, and then it sends them a link to schedule um, on a round-robin basis with one of the salespeople there. And then when that's done, it then updates a few custom attributes in PipeDrive and in Drip. And it's basically all the salespeople need to do is show up. I mean, their calendars get populated. They just show up for sales calls, um, and it's, all of the other stuff is automated. When you're pitching based on value, I'm assuming you're not talking about Drip and, and Zapier and, and pipe drives. And so what what is the pitch? Is just your sales guys show up and the leads are there? or The pitch is basically being able to push through more deals. So, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort to figure out what the average value of a deal is for them. And, you know, it's a matter of what would being able to push through one more deal a month mean for you. Usually for the kind of clients I work with, that's 50K plus. So it becomes a very easy way to, to anchor based off that, that potential upside. So really what I'm selling is I'm selling increased sales bandwidth. So there's more bandwidth for them to, um, to actually sell instead of all the messy work around. And, and a lot of these, like, honestly, a lot of people I'm working with have no idea what their conversion rates are. They have no idea, like, 
you know, how many people who write in become, there's no funnel. There's no, there's no like kiss metric style funnel usually for these companies. And so then they're spending ad money on like Google ads for Facebook. And I haven't talked to one agency client who had any idea what their ROI was on their ad spend, which to me is a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, Hmm, well, that's another thing that I (laughs) offer is let's actually figure out which ad channels are profitable. And for the ones that are spend more money on them and the ones that aren't stop spending money on them. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of really, because a lot of these companies are, it's just like, it's internal chaos. There's no processes, there's no procedures or anything like that. So, you know, I'm just helping them now just kind of streamline. I'm, I'm a huge geek when it comes to processes and procedures. And I know it sounds restrictive or whatever else, but fact of the matter is automate whatever you can. I mean, I run a solo business now, does a million plus a year, and it's all mostly through email automation. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it works, but a lot of companies just don't do it. Or, or they, the funny thing is when they do it for clients, but they don't even do it for themselves where they, right. No, exactly. The, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, on the first episode of the show, I was talking with Josh Denning who runs an agency in Australia and um, his, he gets all of his leads through cold email and he has like a pretty big team for that. He'll send out thousands and thousands of emails a month, gets a few hundred leads a month and then has a team of like SDRs, all of that. And so talking with some of the listeners, like that's a lot bigger than what they're even thinking about right now. And I'm guessing some of the marketing automation stuff is, would be overkill for them. So how would an agency kind of get their feet wet with trying to build some systems, some processes around their sales uh, process. Like firsthand with my own agency, the first one, we would win projects simply because we were the first one to respond to the lead that came in. So something as simple as hooking up in a very simple email autoresponder to a link, or it doesn't even need to be link. It could just be in the contents of the email itself, some qualifying questions. Um, that to me, and you can get that, like we made it so we wait seven minutes within drip. So it's like, it doesn't seem like it's right. Right. You know, it's not clearly automated. Yeah, exactly. And you can do, you know, things like that too. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think something like that would, is very good low hanging fruit. If your opt-in is something lame, like join my newsletter. I mean, there's a lot of things you could improve around that. Um, I mean, a lot depends on kind of the organic traffic you're getting to your site. Depends on if you're doing any sort of content creation on a regular basis. Because this, a lot of this is sort of almost meta of what you do. Because you talk about the how to grow the actual freelancing, how to grow the consultancy, how to grow the agency. But on the back end, your expertise is not only that, but it's also setting up all these marketing systems. And so where did you kind of get your expertise in all of this? Was it something you just picked up? or No, I mean, what ended up happening was I had no idea what like an email course was. And we would do these seminars, these business seminars at our office for the agency. And we would go into MailChimp at the time and manually subscribe people to these autoresponder series that after they go to an event, let's say they go to an event on, um, we did one on getting started with like internet advertising. And the event itself, the 50-minute seminar would be very high level, like, Here's what you can expect. Here's a few case studies. Just kind of like sell the sizzle in a way. And then we would then send them a two-week autoresponder that would have them go through, okay, today we're going to set up your AdWords account, go to this URL, create an account, do this. All right, next day we're going to set up a few ads. 
A few days later, let's look at how the ads were, you know, performed. A few days later, let's optimize. Um, and what we would do is we would basically teach people how to do their own stuff pseudo similar to what we would do if they hired us. But then the final email was basically, you know, Hey, we've taught you a lot over the last few weeks as the teachers, we want to make sure it doesn't go to waste. So can we jump on the phone and, and just give you a little advice on uh, what you should be doing as your next steps, um, you know, to really make sure that you can get a huge ROI when it comes to internet ads. And that's basically a sales call, but we're not pitching it as a sales call and huge uptake rate. And that's how we got a, like, we basically rinse and repeat. Are you offering the road mapping and all of that in that call? No. So that call was free. It was time box, 50 minutes, but then we would upsell road mapping. But what this allowed us to do was we would show up, um, email our list, invite them out and ask them to invite their friends to an, a, a, you know, a seminar on internet advertising. 30, 40 people would show up and then 30, 40 people would get on that email course for lack of a, you know what it was called, but yeah, that's what it is in retrospect. And then 30 or 40 people would get pitched for talking to our biz dev guy about what their next steps were when it came to internet ads. And then probably about half of them would materialize into um, sales calls for my biz dev guy. So it's a matter of show up for an hour and then a few weeks later have you know, 20 new bookings in your calendar. We did this on a very unsophisticated scale with MailChimp and a lot of manual crap. Um, but what I ended up, so you saw the potential with it. Yeah. Like the, the whole like audience stuff. I mean, it's just a difference of scale. Well, there, there's two, it's a difference of scale now with my own business and it's a difference of uh, low touch versus high touch. You're going to be talking on the phone with people. If you're going to sell somebody on a consulting project where nowadays um, most people who buy or customers of mine, I don't, I never talk to in advance or really at all. So it's just a different of, I mean, back then we had maybe at our peak, we had about 3000 people on our list. Um, these are all local. Now I've got, so it's a 10 X improvement on size, but it's also, um, yeah, it's just, it's just different extremes, I guess, in terms of scale. And so it was just kind of slowly refining and almost modernizing that process with the technology that was available. Well, what I realized is if you're going to like a lot of consulting sales is convincing, right? It's a lot of persuasion and a lot of that is done one-on-one. So you get like, let's say you meet a new lead or you meet somebody at an event, you meet them for coffee, you talk a few hours maybe, and then you're at the point of pitching them. Um, We realized, well, what if we could do a lot of the, uh, persuasion stuff either automatically or at scale. So like in a seminar, you know, if you've, you give up an hour of your time, but you affect, you convince, you persuade 30 plus people at once. Um, that to me is a lot more effective than 30 hour calls or hour conversations, you know? Um, so we did a lot of that, which ended up, uh, allowing us to, I mean, we, we sold plenty of six figure projects and, literally like 15 minutes because by the time they talked to us about a project, it was really just hammering out the details. You know, there, there was no like show us that you're worthy or, you know, any of that stuff, you know, like, yeah, because at the point where you're actually talking to people at first, when people would say, Oh, you sold a hundred K project in 15 minutes. Like that's crazy. But it's just because you delay the point where you're actually talking to them. It was like a six month sale process, but um, the conversation was short, but yeah, but we were able to sell a lot of, 
people over that same. So it's definitely like a longer game approach because everyone, I mean, every consultant wants to go to a networking event tonight and walk away with a signed contract, but that doesn't work. It's not how it usually pans out. So it's just a matter of building up an audience, getting them to realize, because if you think about it, like the reason referrals come to us is typically because we have past clients who have received value from us, right? So that's where our referral base is. Well, what if you can deliver client, what if you can deliver value without there being a financial relationship yet? Where if you can deliver value through like a seminar or a webinar or an email course or all this other stuff, you're still delivering value. You're still making somebody better off. And now they're in a, a prime position to potentially refer you, especially when you prompt them the right way. That way you're able, you know, you can only grow so many, you can only, if you're consulting, you can only add so many clients at once at a, you know, during a given window. But with this, I can go in front of a chamber of commerce audience and talk to them about for 50 minutes about something like, um, should you build custom software or should you buy something off the shelf? Pros and cons of each. And at the end of that event, I now have 50 people who hopefully have received a pretty high degree of value for me are now a part of my audience, especially if I've done things right and um, had natural like touch points for them to opt into something additional of mine where they're swapping their contact info for something else. Like when I say we had 3000 people, what that allowed us to do is it's kind of like having a portfolio of 3000 clients. Like what would that mean for your referral list? Probably be huge. Right. Your, your content is almost acting as the referral source. It's that's who's educating them. That's who's kind of building that authority and trust. It's, it's delivering value without there being, I mean, when you deliver a successful project, you're delivering value and people are more willing to refer when they've received something of benefit from you. So this is a way of delivering something of benefit without there being a full blown contract client thing. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And so, You've built this agency. You've built an agency a while ago. You exited. You got into the the SaaS business as well as sort of the educational business. Now you're you're back again in the agency. And you said it was the quality of life before was one of the big drivers of getting out. And so, what will be different this time around? Well, what's been different is first off, all my engagements are um, more or less subscription based, so they're not tied to time. Um, they're not tied to really anything. Um, Secondly, there's no presumption that I'm a part of the product. Um, so even though at the moment, while I'm still kind of feeling the waters, I'm doing a lot of the work myself, my long-term goal is not to be doing that. My long-term goal is to define the product and to be the one leading the product, but not to be the one necessarily fulfilling the product. Just a lot of different things around that specifically, but the big thing is that um, it, I'm in a good position now, uh, fortunately, where I'm not dependent on this consulting income at all. So it's more of a nice to have, not a need to have. So I, I don't need a, you know, I can take on a very limited amount of projects and, and everything else. But um, yeah, for me, it's really just a way it's, it's like, it's a bit like, you know, now that I've been teaching about this stuff, a lot of which are things that I wish I would have done differently. What if I could do it from scratch the right way? And that's what right. I, you're almost your own case study at this exactly. point. And it, it makes for good blog fodder and everything else too. So, right. And so it seems like with this time around, you're obviously much more deliberate from the start about what it's going to look like, what's going to go into it and what is expected from you. And so I know we don't have a lot of time left, but how can other agency owners kind of design their business with their own end in mind? 
I mean, I think it's important to understand exactly what your goal. I mean, some people are consulting as a means to an end to start a software company or, you know, something like that. Um, others are using it to build a very big brand name brick and mortar agency. Um, you know, it just depends on your goals. I mean, obviously you need to know the direction you want to go in before you can reverse engineer a path to getting there. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what's most important is to really sell benefit, sell the benefit of what it is you're doing for your clients. Um, really be a professional. Don't make consent. Don't, don't deal with like caving into, I don't know, like price negotiations and all that stuff. Like really just focus on coming up with a great product that is something that you're uniquely capable of delivering and sell that. I mean, that's all it is. That's, you know, even though yes, you're selling your time at the end of the day, the reason people are buying is because they want something reliable and they want something proven. And the best way to do that is, I mean, if you want a great way to, amp up your professionalism, take ownership of your sales process, like really own how you qualify. Um, you should be qualified. When, when you set up a meeting, that first meeting, tell people exactly how long it'll run, what you're going to discuss, you know, what they should come prepared with. Don't just leave it up to be being like a job interview. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. It's like, yeah, let's meet. And then the client who's usually an employer jumps into their, I'm going to interview this person mode. It should be instead, it should be an exploratory thing to see, is there a good fit between our two companies? It's ramping up that kind of professionalism, which is something that a lot of people aren't doing, but that's the best thing I think you can do. Right. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with, when you're talking about the dynamic between the client and the consultant, if you're truly offering them value, if you truly have a great product, they're coming to you because you can help them. So you want to be the one leading the discussion, showing them how you can help them instead of the other way around. Right. And that's how, that's how you will get into those kind of those stickings on price and, and all of that. And then the unreasonable requests and, and so on and so on. So no, I think that's a huge mindset. That's important to have to be successful in the business long term. Yeah, it's just, it's taking ownership of your success. I mean, that's, yeah, really that's the best way of putting it. Yeah. No, and so I think you covered a ton in here, but even with that said, there's still a lot more that could be said about that. So if people want to learn more about how they could act on some of the things you talked about today, where should they go? So two places I'd recommend. First would be um, my main website, which is doubleyourfreelancing.com. I also have a nine-lesson email course, which has had 16-ish thousand people go through it. Um, it's just basically focused on what we talked about before, which is how do you actually understand the the problem behind the project and sell on that? Um, it's a free nine lesson course. That's at freepricingcourse.com. That just redirects to a landing page on my on my main site. So those are the two I would uh, point people to. Nice. And so I'll make sure I get those uh, kind of listed out in the show notes. And then before we go, I just got, I'm curious, what does the next year look like for Brennan Dunn? Going to be writing a more of a mass appeal book. This one on mindset and uh, quitting your job and starting as a freelancer. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on actually right now. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to check that out and just want to say thanks again for coming on the show, Brennan. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. All right. I'll talk to you later. Talking with Brennan always gets me motivated because afterwards everything suddenly makes sense. I know exactly what I need to do differently. Today's talk was no different with the way he broke down the fundamentals of running a successful agency and charging what you're worth. These are the lessons I got from today. 
Fill your pipeline with prospects by finding ways to speak in front of groups who you can help and sharing with them enough information so they know how to start helping themselves. Then continue to build a relationship with these prospects through email, so when they're ready to buy, they'll turn to you. When you're talking to them, use Socratic questioning in order to determine the real reason they're coming to you, and no is not just because they want a new logo. When it comes time to ask for the sale, always focus on the benefits your clients will get when talking about your services. They don't care that you use test-driven development. They care that they won't have to spend as much money maintaining your software down the road. And finally, be a professional. For everything you do, make it clear that you have a process in place that you've built through experience. And don't deviate from that just to appease a needy client. Remember, you're the expert. If you let the client run the show or haven't raised your rates in years, then please check out his free course at freepricingcourse.com. You won't regret it. All right, that's all for this week. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and head over to iTunes to leave a review. Reviews really help our rankings in iTunes and help us reach a wider audience. So if you could spare just a minute to do that, I'd really appreciate it. Talk to you next week. See ya.